You're listening to The Electables, hosted by Adrian Elrod and Doug Thornell. Each week, The Electables gives you an insider's take on all the moves, spin, and buzz in the campaigns of Democrats fighting to win the party's nomination and beat Donald Trump in 2020. This week's special guest is Brian Fallon. The Electables airs next. Hey folks, welcome to The Electables. I'm Doug Thornell. I'm joined by my partner in crime, the super talented Adrian Elrod, and our special guest, Brian Fallon, the former spokesman for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Today is a treat. We are releasing the long-awaited, eagerly anticipated Democratic primary Power Five rankings. So Brian, want to kick us off? He's got a sheepish grin on his face right now. I feel like we need it. Are we starting from five and working our way up? Yeah, we're going from five down to one. Okay. Uh, All right. Um, I'm going to, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I'm just going to, I feel like once you get into four, five, six, seven, eight territory, they could all be interchangeable. That's so, true. Okay. And these so, are kind of, it's like a gut instinct. Yeah. You know, not, it's not like we're no one's gonna at, take we're not offense. crunching numbers. Yeah. We're not like, you know, yeah. so, doing some sort of scientific. To all our here. friends on these campaigns, please don't take offense at these rankings because, look, they're going to change. That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, five, I will put, I'm just going to try to mix it up here and spark some conversation. Five, I'm going to put Sherrod Brown. What do you think about that? Sherrod Brown's announcing that he's going to launch a uh, tour of some of the early nominating states. He's got a message and a theme to the tour. He's calling it the Dignity of Work Tour. And, um, you know, I think that post-2016, we've heard endlessly this conversation about the need to win back Obama-Trump voters, which I think makes us all roll our eyes, right? But um, Sherrod Brown is somebody that has appeal in blue-collar areas with white non-college voters, but doesn't sacrifice anything, I don't think, when it comes to being a true progressive, either on social justice issues and certainly not on economic issues. Um, so I'm intrigued. Um, I might change you know, who I put as number five in the next time we do this, but just for the sake of expressing how intrigued I am by the prospect of Sherrod Brown, I'm going to put him at number five. So, Fallon, I, I agree. I have, I have Sherrod Brown... Down is my number five, too. Okay. Uh, first of all, let's remember he r- just ran for re-election uh, in 2018. He won, uh, he won re-election in a Trump state. Uh, Democrats lost the gubernatorial race there. Uh, he won re-election. Uh, I like the fact he's from Ohio. I like the fact he's got a crisp message. He's a good guy uh, as well. Uh, still not sure he's going to run, but um, I, 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 that's, I, think he's got, I think he brings a lot to the table. Dr. Dre. <laughs> so I don't have, this may surprise you guys, I don't have Sherrod Brown as my um, fifth person, although I agree with all the sentiments expressed. Um, I am going to go with, um, for my fifth person, I'm going to go with Cory Booker uh, for all the obvious reasons. Um, he's dynamic. He uh, has relatively high name ID. If you look at sort of the second tier um, candidates in this race. Um, and he's got a great message. I mean, he's, um, he's, he is, uh, somebody who's well known, who's talked about criminal justice, income inequality. Um, and he's also made a name for himself both as, um, mayor, uh, when he was in New Jersey, when he was mayor. And of course, as a United States Senator, 
Um, I think he'll perform very well in South Carolina, um, assuming that he does run. We don't know for sure if he's running yet, um, but he is my he's my fifth choice. Fallon number four. Bernie. Um, I look, I don't, I just don't you say that I, with so much enthusiasm. Well, I, I don't think that you can dismiss that if Bernie runs, he's going to have the biggest list. Um, he's going to have a, uh, a, the intensity among his supporters is beyond dispute. Now, I think he has, um, the polls that we've seen so far don't count for much at this stage in the game. Um, the national polls asking people about their top preference in the Democratic primary. But I do think that there's certain things that you, that you can draw from them and, and attach some meaning to them. And so I look at the polls and I see, I see Bernie down at 10, 11, 12 percent. And to me, that's proof that the 40, 45 percent of the primary electorate that he captured against Hillary Clinton in 2016, that, uh, that a good two-thirds of them are already shopping for other candidates. And, and Bernie won't, this time around, obviously have the benefit of just being the one alternative to the establishment candidate. There'll be plenty of options for progressive voters. But that said, even among the residual base of support that he has, the intensity of those supporters is, um, is impressive. Um, there was just a couple weeks ago a mass day of organizing where they did house parties. I think they had like 400 meetups across the country uh, to urge him to run. And he's still got people like Winnie Wong and, 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 and other top organizers that are gonna that are really sophisticated and good um, when it comes to building a movement without a lot of resources. But um, <clears throat> speaking of resources, I think he'll be one of those people that continues to impress with small dollar online fundraising. And he very well be somebody that can match, you know, what Kamala did in the first 24 hours after announcing. So um, I don't think that Bernie will be as formidable by any stretch as he was in 2016, but I think for many of those progressive mm-hmm. supporters of his from 2016, he remains the sort of the undiluted, 100-proof version of the uh, democratic socialist idea that they want. And so I think he's going to remain an avatar for that movement, and for that reason, I think he's going to be in it for a long time. Elrod? Remain an avatar of that movement. I like it. Um, look, I'm going to agree with you on Bernie Sanders being number four for all the reasons you laid out. Um, you know, he if you look at polls right now, and I think this is an important distinction, if you look at straight-up national polling, who, you know, of, of the people who have expressed intent to run for president, who would you pick today? Who would be your, your choice today? A lot of these polls are name ID driven. And I think it's important to make a distinction between name ID and who we actually think is truly formidable in the long run. And I think that's what we're looking at today. Because if you just look at polling alone, Biden and Sanders tend to be leading a lot of the polls for sheer name ID only. But that will change as more candidates get into the race and as they make their message known and more people get to know them. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time on this. I agree with everything Brian Fallon just said. Um, Bernie Sanders like does that. have, I mean, you know, Stick I don't always that, agree. I don't always agree with everything you say, but I will on this one. Um, and he does have the capacity to raise a lot of money. He has a lot of lists. Given how many people are going to be running in this primary, it's hard to underestimate the importance of having good data, good list, um, a built-in donor network. He's not going to do as well as he did um, in 2016, because he really did have 
uh, not only his base of support, but also the um, Democrats who just didn't want it for whatever reason, didn't want to vote against Hillary or didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, really only had Bernie Sanders, especially after Martin O'Malley got out and he really didn't go very far anyway. So um, I would put him at number four, but I could see him uh, slipping pretty quickly as this race goes on, especially after the debates. So I would also put Bernie Sanders at four, but I'm going to take I'm going to pull a cop out here because I'm going to have two people at four. I've mm, got uh, yeah. Is that I cheating? Know. Eh, well, we're still making up the rules, right? I so we, I didn't know you could have ties. Well, yeah, we're tying. So Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are my four because I think I see them both competing for a lot of the same types of voters. They're both neighbors to New Hampshire. I think that's going to be a real, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how other campaigns decide to compete in New Hampshire when you've got Bernie Sanders if he gets in and Elizabeth Warren there. I mean, do some folks just say, hey, you guys you guys can compete and try to win it there, or we're going to focus on Iowa and, and South Carolina? Can I interject really quickly? I think it's important when we look back at what happened in 2016 and, um, and also previous primaries, New Hampshire voters like people from neighboring states. And so I think that's a very important point that you just made, which is, are Bernie and Elizabeth Warren going to duke it out in New Hampshire? Do other campaigns not invest as much in that state? Number three, Mr. Fallon. Number three, I have Beto O'Rourke, which um, I think Fallon's looking at my list. No, well, I actually I assumed that <laughs> maybe I'm I was, looking at your list. Number three would be low compared to where you guys would have slotted him. I have him at number three. Um, total wild card if he's going to run at all. Obviously, um, I tend to think he is. I feel like this. Jack Kerouac on the road routine is a buildup to something. Um, he's definitely, he's, without even asking for it, an infrastructure is slowly starting to coalesce in some of these early states because there's just so many people that want to raise their hand and become involved on his behalf that they're starting to set up draft Beto movements in these early states. I do think that my concern for him is, um, I think if he had gone to, say, Iowa in December... He could have gotten like six or seven thousand people because the buzz around him the buzz around him is still high, but it was it was um through the roof in December, right on the heels of how closely he finished in Texas against Ted Cruz. And if he had done that, um I think that would have like I'll suddenly set the bar for everybody else that came after. And Elizabeth Warren was viewed as having had a great trip to Iowa. Um, right after she announced in early January. But I think that we might have looked that at that trip completely differently if there had been some kind of like blow-the-roof-off-the-joint-type rally that Beto had done um, attracting huge crowds in December. Are you saying he missed an, his, uh, his moment? Well, <clears throat> I, I, I think it's... It might be going too far to say that he's missed his moment because I think if he got in at this point, he would still uh, generate a huge amount of buzz and and there's still a ton of staffers I know that want to work for him that are sort of like weighing offers from other people and holding off trying in hopes that Beto's going to decide to run and they can go work for him. Um, but I do think that to the extent that anybody thinks that time is on their side, the rollouts that have happened so far, I think have proved that there's genuine enthusiasm for the people that are getting into the race. So I don't think you can make a decision on the assumption that I can wait around till March or April and people will be so disillusioned with the current field that there'll be a market for some kind of quote-unquote savior. I think by March or April you might find that people like Harris and Warren are building a lot of support um, because there's genuine enthusiasm for their candidacies. So I would, I'm not going to second guess you know, the timing that he's making a decision on, but I would just say, you know, 
the race is, is, is being joined, and I think that um, uh, the sooner people get in, the better in general. But All right. Number three. Number three. All right. My number three is Kamala Harris. Um, I think she had a great rollout. Um, a lot of this is based on just her um, sheer ability to connect with people, her message, her, um, you know, her the fact that she represents California. Um, I think that's a huge benefit to her. She's also assembled a very strong team. And I think in this day and age with the number of people who are probably going to be running, you cannot underestimate the importance of having a really small, strong, smart team. And she does. Brian and I worked with a lot of um, her senior staff during the 2016 campaign. Um, she's also assembled, I think it's important to note this, uh, she has assembled as part of her team um, a man known by the name of Delegate Dave, who is by far the most intelligent person in the Democratic Party who truly understands how the delegate process works. And that means, and by the way, I think we could dedicate a whole podcast to the way the delegate system works in the future. We could dedicate a whole podcast to just Delegate Dave. Just Delegate Dave. He's a very interesting guy. Um, But he knows the insides and outsides of how the delegate process works in every state, especially those key early states, the first four, and of course, Super Tuesday states. Um, And he also understands the delegate process when it comes to the convention. There have been a lot of reforms that have taken place since the 2016 presidential campaign under DNC Chairman Tom Perez in, in terms of the superdelegates and how they play. But the bottom line is if you are in a very competitive, very crowded Democratic primary and there is a real chance that this could take this nomination could go to the convention floor, you want Delegate Dave on your side. And so that was a big, big get for Kamala. And then, of course, finally, if you just look at the early states and the way the map has been rejigged since 2016, obviously South Carolina is a, is a state that Kamala needs to, to play in and win or get a very close second if, if Cory Booker or, or somebody of that um, stature is, is running. Um, and she's obviously got to win California, but she's got a real, I mean, I'm not saying it's her state to lose, but she will play very, very well in California because she's been elected statewide there before. So I think the map plays to her advantage um, she's assembled a strong team, and she's also just a great person. She connects with people. Um, she's charismatic, and she's very, very smart. She knows policy very well, and I think all of those are attributes that matter in this type of primary. So my uh, number three is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, I'll be brief on this because I think Fallon touched on it. Uh, look, the guy raised $80 million in his Senate race uh, against Ted Cruz. He raised $38 million one quarter. Now, obviously, he was running against one of the most uh, annoying, <laughs> unpopular uh, senators that exists, right? But um, And so there was a lot of money that was going to him. He also didn't take any PAC money. Uh, and, you know, he's, he created a viral moment with, the, um, with what he said about the players who are um, uh, right. uh, kneeling for the, uh, for the uh, 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 anthem. anthem. So I, he's my number three. And, um, you know, I'm not convinced he's going to run. There's also a Senate race that he could potentially throw his hat into in 2020 against John Cornyn. So we'll see what happens there. Number two, Mr. Fallon. Number two, I have Elizabeth Warren at number two. Hey. I am by low on Elizabeth Warren right now. And a big reason why I sort of addressed it earlier in the show. I think that she's got the crispest, most authentic storyline for why she's running and what she wants to do as president 
and I think that you can't put a price tag on how valuable that is because um, that whole team, that whole culture that that campaign will build, they have a North Star. Um, they know why they're in it. They There's consistency there. I think that she's shown an, uh, a willingness to mix it up and be aggressive and set the tone of the debate. We talked about how she injected the issue of super PACs and self-funding billionaires. She also sent an email about D.C. statehood that I feel like set off buzz about how that's going to need to be something that the field endorses and everybody talks about. So I see her... I see her being savvy in terms of like setting the tone of the debate pretty consistently throughout the contest. Um, and I also just have been impressed by the sheer caliber of the team she's assembling. She basically has three or four people on her Iowa team alone that would merit being the state director for any of the other campaigns. And she gobbled them all up and has them all working for her. Um, and uh, I think that we didn't see a number read out from her first 24 hours of fundraising or anything, but I suspect that she is going to have success with her small dollar fundraising as well she's proven that throughout her career so um i know that posts the dna issue there's a lot of quibbling about you know how seriously to take that campaign i think she's gonna i think the iowa trip showed that she's going to be a force to be reckoned with and i think that uh, the first month of her formal candidacy um she's sort of silenced a lot of the criticisms that were coming her way in november and december Elrod, number two. Um, so I'm going to copy you since you kind of cheated and you put two people in one position. So I'm going to copy you on this one. I have Beto O'Rourke and Elizabeth Warren. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through the reasons why because I think we've laid them all out. Um, but I do want to go back to something that Fallon said briefly about Beto, which is, and you also harped on too, which is he's getting to the point where it's almost getting too late, um, especially in this We've said it many times so far in this podcast, but this very crowded field, um, there's a lot that people don't know about him, even though he ran a very formidable, very strong race against Ted Cruz and almost won and raised, you know, mass amounts of money. But there's a lot that people still don't know about him. And you've got to jump in while the iron is hot, while people are excited. And given that we have not heard a lot from him lately, you know, I maybe he's still doing a lot of Facebook town halls and lives and Instagram storytelling and whatnot. He probably is, but it's not getting out there in the bloodstream as much as it was because the oxygen is being filled with other candidates, with Trump's antics, with things that are happening on Capitol Hill. So I think if he's going to get in, he's got to get in quickly. But I also want to say one more point on this. There is this notion that, oh, if people don't get in, if candidates don't get in in the first quarter, then the money's going to dry up and they're not going to have you know, the strong donor base that they could have if they wait. I actually don't agree with that because I think you will see especially a lot of bundlers, a lot of, which is definitely, a bundler is somebody who raises a lot of money from their network for somebody and it commits to raising X amount of dollars for a candidate. I think this time around you will see a lot of donors give to multiple candidates. They want to make sure that they are casting a wide net, that they're not eliminating anybody from their, you know, their spheres of, of, of influence. And so I think that there are certain candidates who could probably wait, especially the Joe Bidens of this world. I think they might be able to wait until Q2 because I don't think that their fundraising will be impacted. But I think somebody like Beto needs to get in pretty quickly if he's going to do this because, you know, he's still, he's very popular. People, um, you know, like him a lot. But um, 
I don't know how long that's going to last if he stays out of the the longer he stays out of the presidential race. My number two is Senator Kamala Harris. Heard of her? Yeah, we've we've talked a lot about her, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on why she's my number two. I think she she's got a uh, uh, a lot in terms of experience she brings to the table. She's from the you know she's from California, which has now moved up their primary. It's an early state. She had a really good rollout. She's got smart people around her. I think she's going to have the ability to uh, raise a lot of money. And uh, look, she brings a lot. She's attractive to a lot of different people within the party. And so right now she's number two. We'll see how she plays and when she gets when she spends a whole lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire. But um, in South Carolina and South Carolina, obviously. Uh, And, you know, she's also uh, let's not forget Nevada uh, as a, you know, as a neighbor to that state, uh, which is an early state, uh, early primary state for Dems. That's going to be a place where she should play well. Number one, I feel like we need a drum roll here. Mr. Fallon. Well, it's sort of anticlimactic because my number one is your number two. It's Harris. Um, But I should probably just pause to say, like, how I'm viewing this whole exercise of ranking people. If you gave me the option of betting the field against any one candidate, I would take the field. Like, that's what I think the state is. So... At any given point, if somebody's ranked number one, to me, um, they're just edging out. It's know, like whoever. an AP ranking in basketball. These the, the ranking. Yeah, everyone. Everyone. Preseason ranking. Preseason rank. This is a preseason ranking. So yeah. you know, people are going to have ups and downs, and they're going to you're going to you know, one could go to five, and you could see a surge from seven to one, right? Right. So I think on paper, I think Harris has. A very clear path, and her advisors have not been shy about backgrounding reporters about how they see that path coming together for her. And it's, by now, I think a lot of people read it and heard it, but it's basically that, A, she could play in Iowa. She's somebody that can seriously contest Iowa and maybe even win it. Um, B, I think we all think of New Hampshire as somebody, as a state that's going to favor somebody like Warren or or Sanders because of the advantage of being from a neighboring state. I think it's the case that um, that primary has been won by a New Englander whenever there is one in the race, except mm-hmm. for 1980 when Jimmy Carter was the incumbent president. Um, and then I think you would assume that she would do well in, in Nevada and in South Carolina, win South Carolina. And then in that first 10 days of March, you have not only California, but you have a host of the so-called SEC states where there's anywhere between 50 to 70 percent of the uh, primary electorate in those states being African-American. So there's a clear path to her, um, but I think that it has to materialize. Like, we have to see how she does on the stump. We have to see, I mean, I think that this Oakland speech that she's doing this weekend will be important, not just to see the look and feel of the event and to judge the enthusiasm of the crowd, but also to hear a little bit more from her about what we were talking about, about the whole theory of why I'm in the race and, and how I'm diagnosing what ails the country and what, my, what I view the solutions as being. Um, so I feel like we have a little bit more to hear from her on that than, than we've heard from, say, Warren or even Gillibrand. Um, but on paper, uh, you know, if you were putting together a slide deck, it's a pretty compelling path uh, to about how you get the, the delegate count to where you need to get. And I totally agree with everything that's been said about the team she's assembling. It's top talent. And picking up Dave Wynn, so-called Delegate Dave, every campaign would have wanted to hire Dave. That's and right. I'm surprised he's committing to a horse this early, um, but the fact that he is is a feather in the cap of the Harris team. 
Um, Superdelegates mean less this time around because of the rules change. But just knowing, uh, having all those political relationships, because they do come back into play if there's a contested convention, right. uh, is a big deal. And, and, and just understanding the map and knowing how to play for, um, you know, a lot of these states are not winner-take-all, including, by the way, California. People make a big deal about California, but A, it takes a long time to count, and B, it's not winner-take-all. And so <clears throat> that's where the math and the analytics really come in about figuring out how to hedge your bets. And finishing like a strong second can almost mean just as much as winning a state, not in the earned media, but delegate-wise, it can. And so there's a strategy to where you put your investments, where you put your money for your field program and your television advertising, depending on where the opportunities are to gain those marginal delegates. That's where Dave's, that's what his specialty is. So that's a big hire. Just a nail on the head. Um, my number one is Joe Biden. Um, for all the right re- or all the obvious re- reasons, I should say. Um, high name ID, beloved, uh, Vice President of the United States. You know, I think... Joe's challenge will be staying on top should he decide to run. And I think he's going to have a really difficult time doing that. So I, that's why I want to make it clear this is where I see the rankings today if the race were held today or where we feel, see the field at this moment. But I think Joe Biden, for you know the fact that he can raise a lot of money, the fact that he's got 99% name ID, um, the fact that he can he raise a lot pick. of money, Adrian? I'm just going to interject. I mean, if he can't, then that's a big problem. It would be. And I have no doubt that it will have big relationships with Bundros. But I think, tell me if anybody in this group disagrees, whoever wins is going to be somebody that knocks it out of the park with small-dollar donors. And I don't know if Joe Biden can compete when it comes to online contributions uh, with, like, the Harrises and the Warrens and the Sanders of the world. You're probably right. I mean, that's, that's a, an important distinction. And the question becomes then... Can he raise money in, in larger sums to compete with some of those small dollar donations that will have to be seen? I think he probably can. Um, but I think it's been interesting to see some of this early polling in terms of where voters' minds are. And by the way, I also think that if you're running for president, you don't necessarily want to be the front runner at this point. I mean, it's always nice to be the front runner, but the pressure to stay on top is really intense. I think floating somewhere, hovering around two or three is not a bad place to be. But there was an Iowa, there was a poll in Iowa that I think was a Suffolk County um, poll, maybe it was a Suffolk County AP, I'm not sure who the other uh, media sponsor was, but voters essentially said, caucus goers said in Iowa, if the election were held today, they'd like to su- support somebody new because they feel it's important as Democrats to help create the new generation of leaders, and so they want to be a part of that, except for Joe Biden. He was the one person that they said they would support because they thought that he was the best person to take on Trump and beat Trump. So their desire to have somebody new, a new face, a new set of, um, you know, the next generation of leaders, their, their role in terms of making sure that th- those people move forward was rivaled by the fact that they want to make sure that their top priority is to beat Donald Trump. And right now they believe that Joe Biden may be the only person who can do that. But I do think that could change. That is why he's my number one right now. He may not be my number one in a couple weeks or a couple months. So before I go to my number one, for those Democrats out there and for uh, uh, everyone else who's listening, in terms of looking at who is the most electable Democrat to beat Trump, we actually have some evidence that there are a number of Democrats who are running who can beat Trump. PPP, one of our uh, favorite polling outfits, uh, released a poll this week, and they tested a number of the folks we've been talking about uh, against uh, President Trump. And Joe Biden uh, 
uh, beats Trump 53-41. Cory Booker beats Trump 47-42. Gillibrand beats Trump 47-42. Kamala Harris beats Trump 48-41. Beto O'Rourke beats him 47-41. Our own, our favorite Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, actually beats Donald Trump 47-44. I think maybe in this poll, any of the three of us might have beaten Donald Trump. Uh, it's, it's very possible. Uh, uh, Brian's old boss, Chuck Schumer, even beats uh, Donald Trump 46-41. Elizabeth Warren's 48-42. Bernie Sanders is 51-41. So the point is, is that I, you know, look, Trump is is very vulnerable. He's weak right now. He's got his favorable numbers are are some of the lowest that they've been during his presidency. Uh, Obviously, this shut this Trump shutdown that he caused is having a uh, an impact uh, on his uh, not only his approval rating but also uh, his electability in in 2020, and we're starting to see evidence that Republicans, uh, some of the, some people in his base, are uh, turning away from him. So, look, that you know these polls are real early, um, and so you know you kind of take them with a grain of salt. But that should be that is uh, if you're a Democrat and you're looking at this field, it's um, we've got a lot of electable Democrats out there. I think. My number one right now, though, is Uncle Joe Biden, uh, the former vice president of the United States, former senator from Delaware. You know, look, it remains to be seen whether he runs. But, uh, you know, I think the way I arrived at this is I think he is the most electable Democrat right now against uh, against the president. And uh, but we just you just said everyone's electable. Well, but I'm saying he is the most. He had he he fared the best in that poll. He was at fifty three forty one. Uh, I'm not saying that the others can't beat Trump. It's clear that there are a bunch of people in our field who can beat Trump. But if we're looking at who is the most electable uh, right now, I see that as uh, Joe Biden. Uh, he he brings. I, I think he can compete in uh, many different battleground states. I think he can go to Florida and do well there. I think he can put Ohio on the map. I think he can uh, bring Michigan back. I think he can uh, obviously win Pennsylvania. Uh, I think he can even compete in uh, maybe make Georgia and pl- put Georgia in play, uh, Arizona. Um, look, at the end of the day, all Democrats need to do, right? Uh, Brian and Adrian, you know this better than anyone. All you need to do is win Wisconsin, win Michigan. Oh, duh. <laughs> and Bye. win Pennsylvania. Oh, was that a low blow? I guess this will be our first and last episode. Um, right. So right. he's my number one. We'll see. You know, I uh, I think he, he he remains very popular within the Democratic Party. I think the question about fundraising is is uh, is is uh, a good one. And, you know, how much does he is he able to tap into that Obama uh, network of donors and uh, and, and small dollar uh, givers? That That's going to be an interesting thing. And then also just sort of the the long duration of a campaign, everyone has to go through that. Um, uh, but you know, I I feel like if he could advance to the general, uh, he would you know he would he would beat Trump pretty soundly. So so I didn't have Uncle Joe. I on was my list just going to say, Fallon, that, you didn't yeah, even why have not? Uncle Joe on your list. I was probably overcompensating in the in the other way. I, realistically, he probably belongs at like number three or four on. But my you get list. a tie. I think you get a tie. Somewhere no, because no, Doug, that's okay. I'll keep him off Doug just to make the tie. point. You want a mulligan? I had a tie. No, just to, uh, you know, I, I probably did it for overemphasis. There you have it, folks. Our first Power Five rankings. Thanks to Brian Fallon for joining us. For Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables. Catch you next time. <laughs>